you probably heard me talk about this before, but if you haven't, especially if you're new, I started preaching uh, in church when I was 14. 14. Uh, that's not cool, all right? And I was not good. Uh, but I did it, and I was in a small country church out in Mississippi, because uh, you either had like our 60-year-old senior pastor or me. That was it. <laughs> that, was, that was as deep as the bench got. And so, um, yeah, but I had a passion for it, really wanted to do it. And so by the time, and, and I grew up uber charismatic, uh, which means like I, we would watch TBN and then try to do that at church the next week, okay? If you don't know what that means, you're safe. You're okay. Don't worry. <laughs> but if you know what that means, like, you know, I needed a lot of help. Uh, and so like there were different preachers I'd see on TV and, you know, a lot of kids want to practice like and emulate their favorite baseball players or, or little girls, their favorite, you know, ballerina or dancer. I wanted to imitate my favorite preacher on TBN uh, or my favorite exorcist on TBN. Like that's what I tried to do. And it's real. I would stay up. I wouldn't go on dates on Friday. I would stay home, watch my favorite preacher, eat usually one or two McRibs, uh, and then um, play video games and then wait for the exorcist to come on like on TBN, not the movie, the dude. Like there's a guy that cast out demons. Anyway, I digress. Point is, like, that was my life, <laughs> and I was really into it. I really had a passion for, for Jesus, really had a passion for Jesus. There was nothing that was going to get in my way of following after Him. And I just, from like 16 to 26 or 25, and I was just going for it and killing it and like high-fiving angels and just doing the Lord's work. I went to college um, and had a chance to even go play baseball in college, but I didn't want to do that because I wanted to get out of the college ASAP and start my preaching ministry. And so that was stupid because I have debt. So I did that, and then I was a missionary for a while, and I moved back to, to get married to Suzanne. But the thing that, that really propelled me in the midst of all that was the story of a guy named William Borden. And William Borden um, was the son of the heir, the Borden family in Chicago. Uh, Borden milk, right? If you ever had Borden milk, that's the cow. Um, so if you've ever had that. And William Borden was the eldest son of the Borden family. And um, in 1905, uh, William graduated high school at 16. That was pretty normal at that time. And um, he really sensed a call to want to go work overseas and to go reach an unreached people group. And he was still wrestling through exactly who that would be. And so in, in the back of his Bible, though, he was so committed to this, as he was going to Yale on mission to go start his education, he just wrote in the back of his Bible um, two words, no reserve. No reserve. That was it. Um, and so then he goes to Yale and studies. His freshman year, there were 1,300 students on Yale's campus. He was so on fire for the Lord. By the time he was a senior at Yale, um, over 1,000 of the 1,300 students who were allowed on Yale's campus were in the Bible study that he had started. Like he started a Bible study because he was passionate about God, and he was just leading the masses even, even at Yale. And so, when he finished there, uh, as he was getting ready now to uh, go to Princeton for his theological studies, uh, he finally realized that he wanted to go reach uh, the, the Kamu or the Kansu um, Muslims in northwestern China. It was a, a group of Muslims that live in northwestern China. He wanted to go reach them and had a real passion for it. So, under the words, no reserve, in the back of his Bible, um, he wrote, no retreat. No retreat, no reserve, no retreat. He went to Princeton, finished up his studies, um, and then at 25 years old, he was a multimillionaire. And this is a big deal in the early 20th century. There weren't a lot of those. 
but he was very, very well off. And his friends would tell them how foolish he is for giving all this money up just to go be a missionary. And he thought to himself, and he would say to them, like, no, I have to go do the will of God for my life. And so he then got on a boat and traveled to China. He stopped in Egypt because he wanted uh, to study Arabic so he would have that tool as he went to northwestern China to reach these Muslims. And while he was in Egypt, in Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis and within a month died at 25 years old. And while he was there on his deathbed, um, he took his Bible back out. Here's a man, 25 years old, his whole life in front of him, gave up millions of dollars. Underneath, no reserve, no retreat, he also wrote these two words, no regret, period. And then died in an unmarked, and they buried him in an unmarked grave in the back alleys of Cairo. And that was this life of this young man, William Borden. And I remember hearing this story when I was around 19, 20 years old, and thinking, I want to go do that. Like, I just want to go serve God and do those things and give my life to Him because He's given me life. And so that's what I started, like, basing my whole life off, off of, those, those three lines, no reserve, no retreat, no regret, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. And that's what I was going for. And then I went overseas, came back, got married. And just a few years later, I moved from 16 years old now at 26 years old, and I found myself in Tupelo, Mississippi, sitting in a small little uh, Episcopal church chapel that was open during the day, staring at the pulpit and the stage in front of me, and just questioning the existence of God Himself. That's not how you thought the story would end. Like the story begins with somebody on fire at 16, preaching, whoever's going to hear them. No reserve, no retreat, no regret. Let me just go be buried in the back alleys of Cairo, an unmarked grave. And now at 26 here, I find myself questioning the whole existence of God. And if I even want to follow Him anymore, is He even real? I think those moments are more common than what we want to admit. That we're going for it and we want to follow Him and serve Him, but then things happen in life and we find ourselves being deconstructed to some degree with our faith, but we don't want to admit it because it's really shameful. And then we bump into Jesus and He's saying to us simply this one question, do you believe? Do you believe? And you know when you're asked that question, do you believe, it's not one of those things you can really fake it till you make it, you know what I mean? Like, you either believe or you don't. You either, like, really are with Him and want it not just to be true, but it is true, or it's not. And I think that that's what this passage is going to kind of lead us towards, is this idea of really having to face this question, do you believe? Because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't know if you've ever been to somebody before that said that to you. That's kind of a big thing to say. Like, hey, I'm Robin. I'm the resurrection and the life. Oh, hey, Robin, how you doing? Like, I love baseball. You know, whatever. Like, no, it's not how you start conversations. It's not how you think of yourself. So, for Jesus to say this, there's not just um, a big mountain to climb of belief. There's also a lot of consequences with that if we do or don't believe those things. So, let's just dive into this text and see where we get. I'm going to give a couple of observations on some, some of the verses before, just because there's a build like when we read at verse 17, we're like, okay, there's stuff that came before this. Some of the verses will be on the screen, some won't be, so you're going to need to have your Bible handy. 
Let's start with just kind of the context in this building up. Let's start with just the first few verses of, of chapter 11. It says in verse 1, because up front it's saying Jesus is close to this particular family. So in verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and worshiped his feet with her, and, washed, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, they're in Bethany, east of Jerusalem, and Jesus is also in another little small town called Bethany, which would be somewhere like around 90 miles north there, though, like far northern part of modern-day Palestine, Israel, uh, near the Galilee area. And so, um, it's, a, it's a very, like, they didn't have phones, right? Uh, they didn't have somebody nearby that they could kind of send Morse code to and, like, get this message to them. Like, they just kind of had to guess, like, Jesus said He's going to be, like, here in the next three months, so let's just send somebody up there that's going to take them about three or four days uh, and see if they can't find Him. And that's how they did it. Uh, and so, they sent someone up. Now, to send someone up would mean this is a very serious thing. Like, this isn't just a cold, right? It's not like they just have a few aches in their body. Like, obviously, they think that Lazarus is going to die. And they believe that this is worthy enough for Jesus to know because they say to Him, the one that you love. We don't see this with anyone else, anyone else that Jesus has given this kind of affection to, the one that, whom you love. So, there's a deep connection that Jesus has with Lazarus. Two, though, we see that Jesus sees a greater purpose behind the pain and suffering. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, so you would think, like, the one that He really loves, He hears this, He is going to get going. But listen what happens here. When Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. What? What? Like, someone that you deeply love is dying. Like, they're not sending you this message to go like, hey, just so you know, like, like Lazarus, he's kind of hit a bump in the road. He's going to pull out of it. Just don't you worry. Um, if you want to come down, come see him when you can. It wasn't that. He's ill. Come see the one you love. And Jesus says three things. One, this is going to show God's glory. Two, I love them very dearly. Three, let's stay here a couple more days. And there's something there that's very hard to reconcile for us, because if Jesus really loved him, wouldn't he go ahead and start moving towards him? Now, I don't want to spend all my time on this, but I just, I want to, I want to kind of sit with this for a minute, because there's a tension. There's almost like a questioning of character that we could have. Why would Jesus want to wait this long? Like, have you, maybe you can relate. God, I really need you to appear in this situation for me. And He's not sending you a word at the moment that says, I hear you, and I'll come in a couple of days to help you out. Like, nobody's, I don't think you've gotten that. If you have, talk to me afterwards. You need to come preach. But like, I don't think that's happened. And if it did happen, how would you really feel? Like, really upset. What's the point of me reaching out to you if you're just going to take your time with it? I came across this line from Joni Erickson Tata. She um, is a, a, a speaker and writer, artist, 
she's quadriplegic as well. At 16, she dove uh, into shallow, uh, shallow waters, paralyzed herself, and she's been living with this ever since. Something she said was interesting, sometimes God allows what He hates to accomplish what He loves. Sometimes God allows what He hates to accomplish what He loves. I agree with that, and I don't. And I, here's why. I think that absolutely, if you can keep this in mind, God allows what He hates to then bring about what He loves, as long as you keep in mind this, God never provokes what He hates to bring about what He loves. As long as you can hold that intention, then I think this is okay, personally for me. Because if God could do something about it but doesn't, what does that make God into? I'm not going to name it, but like you have your own thoughts with it. If God could but He doesn't, what does that mean about God? And I think to some degree we have to be willing to wrestle with that out loud. We can't just give this kind of blank slate and go, well, he's just good all the time, and all the time he's good, and I just kind of buy into it. That's the thing that will get you into the corner to have your faith deconstructed and sitting at 26 years old facing a stage wondering if God is real. There's only so many one-liners we can give ourselves in life before we have to experience God ourselves. And God's okay with that. He's not afraid of your questioning. He's not afraid of you having to deconstruct some things in your own life. What he is afraid of is you taking things wholesale just because somebody stood in front of you and said it. It's not reverse psychology. Trust me. I just want you to know that, yes, like God does allow things because he gives freedom and there's brokenness and tragedy in the world. It's just there. And yet, like, God is always trying to bring about a greater purpose to all of our pain. Your pain is not futile to God, and your pain is not worthless. Somehow, some way, God is always wanting to use that pain in your life for a greater story to your life, not just someone else. So many times we hear somebody say, well, God's just allowing this to happen to you, brother or sister, so you can encourage the masses. I don't want that. Like, how about, like, God just be good to me and that be okay? And then maybe that, like, encourages you too. I'm just trying to be real. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, yes, I hope it encourages your life, but also, like, I hope it encourages my life as well, right? Okay. We can move on from that. Just stepped off my soapbox. Three, we see Jesus risk His own life. Look at verse 7. Then after He said this to the disciples… Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, this is important because um, last time Jesus was in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, the Judea is the region, southern kind of Palestine, Israel. Jesus got into a lot of trouble, as he does. Uh, You have to remember something. Jesus is a threat. We want to declaw the Lion of Judah and make him into something palatable for us. Let me explain to you something. Jesus was the most polarizing political figure to ever step into space and time. Period. He upset everyone politically. Period. No, no, no. Exclamation point. Because he stepped in and he said, I am the Christ. And not just that, I am. Like, not only do I, like, am your ruler, I am your God. Like, nobody's, like, hanging out with somebody that says that. 
Like, if you, nobody's going, like, I want to be that guy's friend. Like, that person's either true to what they say, and everything has to change, or they're just crazy and get away from them. And Jesus like, I ain't crazy. Like, this is really happening. I've, I'm God who stepped into space and time, and Caesar is not the real emperor. I am. And he's saying that in the capital of Palestine, and they're going, no, you can't do this because we're going to now be suppressed for another hundred years. Like, you can't take it this far, so we're going to have to kill you. And that's why Jesus knew, like, whenever He went back down there, He was going to die. Matter of fact, look at verse 16. So Thomas called the twin. <laughs> you almost can see him say this. Let us also go that we may die with Him. <laughs> like, they kind of all know what's going to happen. You know, like even Peter says to one time, says to Jesus one time, like, where else can we go for the words of life? Like, we got to stick with you, but gosh, we don't really like it that much because we're going to die. So they're going to go back down to Judea, and Jesus is willing to risk His own life for this next part. Look at verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Um, so, Bethany was about two, uh, about two miles east of Jerusalem, and um, the, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha were somehow, they were obviously well-known. Uh, they had a lot of people, it sounds like, that were coming from Jerusalem to come hang out with them and sit with what was called Shiva. And Shiva was this practice where you would mourn with people for at least six to seven days and just sit with them. You wouldn't come in. It's not about offering advice. Oh, he's in a better place. It's all going to work out. Wouldn't you rather him be with the Lord than with you? It wasn't that. It was like, I'm going to come sit with you and cry. Sounds refreshing, honestly, than people trying to give us a bunch of quick fix-it answers. Like, how about us come sit with you in your pain, and we stay there until we get all these tears out of us, and we may even find there's more there when we're done. So that was what Jews understood intuitively to do. And so they go and they sit with Mary and Martha, and there's a lot of tension there because it seems like Lazarus is the only male figure in a patriarchal society of this home, which means they're either going to have to live off any kind of wealth they had, or they're eventually they're going to have to find ways, Mary and Martha, to fend for themselves, which at this time in history, it just is what it is. It was an abusive time for women to live, even more so than today. It was a time when women would not have a voice, even more so than today. If you can look and see all the horrible things that we need to face as a culture today with Me Too and Church Too, it's times a thousand then of what was happening. And so Mary and Martha are feeling this weight. What's going to happen? Also, it's interesting it says four days because for a lot of Jewish uh, people, there was a belief that went around. That, that said that when a person died, their spirit hovered over the body for three days, waiting to see if the person could come back to life. So there was this view, this belief that let's just hold out hope for three days. It's not in Scripture, don't worry, you're not going to find it there. I'm saying these are one of these customs that's just practiced at the time. Maybe, maybe the spirit will come back into the body, they'll come back to life. 
Matter of fact, there were even sorcerers at this time. They're not documented here in Scripture, but people you could pay that would come at nighttime to do these, all, they, they would drill holes in the chest of, of corpses and try to pour hot blood into them. Like there were all kind of weird and crazy things people would do at this time to try to get a body back to life. So it purposely says that the body's been dead for four days, meaning it's not coming back to life. And then Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she comes out to meet him. So let's look here at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, and this is important, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. There's so much here we have to unpack, so much here. Let's just kind of keep this passage up. So Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she comes out to meet him. And then she has this to say to him, like, Lord, if you, like, it's the first thing she says to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She didn't say to him, welcome. She didn't say to him, oh, my God, I'm just so sad. Martha walks up to Jesus and says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? What was so important? What did you have going on? Like, we, we really loved you. And you talked about how much you loved us, and yet you weren't here. Like, yeah, I know you were away. It took you several days to get here, but like, let's just call a spade a spade here, Jesus. Like, where were you? So there's a part of confrontation that she has. There's also a part of honoring. She realizes that like, Jesus is very much in danger by coming to where they are. So she's trying to actually even kind of honor him as well, like to keep him from the masses, from them seeing him. Because once the other people would see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus they're going to run back to Jerusalem and words going to So that part's nice, sure. But this part here about where were you, Jesus, that just hit me throughout the week so much when I'd read that. I couldn't help but think of all the times I've asked Jesus the same thing in my life. Oh, now you're here and comforting me in this moment. But where were you like last week, a month ago, a year ago, when I was pounding the floor, begging you to forgive me, just wondering if you were real, wondering if you were going to come through? Oh, now you're here. Now, now I can sense your presence. I couldn't sense your presence for years before that, but now you're here? Like, I pray for you to come and meet me and be with me in this thing, and now it's over and it's ruined. I've lost the friendship. I've lost the job, whatever it may be, but now you're here? Thanks. I'm glad you're here now. Without a raise of hands, can you just relate to that at all? I don't think I'm the only one. I think that's something that we as humans find ourselves asking. We put ourselves out in a really vulnerable situation with God saying, God, are you here? Are you near? Are you going to help me? And then there's just like radio silence. And now we're left to kind of deal with things in our own humanity, piecing these fragments together of a huge explosion of our own lives. Martha and Mary needed a God moment, and they didn't get it. They needed a God moment. They just needed Jesus to be who He said He was going to be and show up. As I was thinking about what she was experiencing, I was like, I think this would be similar for me. Like, like it took a lot of resolve for her to show up and go see Jesus. 
I don't see her raging on him. Like, I didn't see her beat. I don't picture her beating on his chest. Maybe, I don't know. She seems very almost like too subdued, like too standoffish. To be able to logically say something like that after your brother just passed and your whole future is in question because you're a woman in a patriarchal society wondering if you could take care of yourself, that's just a bit too calculated of an approach to me. Like, for, let, me, let me give a contrast. I think I gave the, the, the booth back there this other passage. This is going to be later on in this passage when Mary comes to him. Uh, let's see here. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping as well, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. That seems a little bit different of an approach. Like she says to him the same thing Martha says, but there's just something about it that seems a lot more intimate when Mary does it than Martha. I know for me, when I've had those moments with God where I wondered if He's near, like I start being hurt. Like, where were you, God? And then it, it moves to like depression, sadness, but then the last stop for me has always been apathy, where I'm just like, you know what, whatever. If that's how it's going to happen, okay, fine. This will just kind of be then a social religious construct for me. You know, it's a bigger deal to walk away from Christianity than it is to stay in, so I'll just stay in it. But like something in me just feels like it died again. I feel like I had all these moments, and going back to age 26, when I was, when I was thinking about sitting in that chapel where God's to be worshiped, and He felt so far away from me, in some ways I kind of felt trapped. Like, I felt like I just kind of had to be there and do that because I had been this missionary for several years, and people gave me all this money to go travel the world. I was this on-fire young preacher at age 16. What would people think if I actually admitted to them saying, I don't know if this is all true, and I don't really know if I want it? Like, it would cost me a lot. And I found myself just having a really hard time wanting to… I, I didn't feel safe enough to talk about that out loud. And so I just try to convince myself, just buy into it, Robin, one more day. Just keep going with it. And I can relate to Martha in this way. I think, I think I'm more Martha than I am Mary. Like, I think I'm more Martha in that I just kind of go, stiff upper lip, strong chin. This is the way it always has been. This is the way it will be. God's not really going to come through. I am lonely as ever with Him, as always. But you know what? He's God. He's King. His choice. Move forward. That's me. Maybe you've had enough sense and emotional intelligence just to be more of like a Mary, to come before Him weeping, saying, if you only would have been here, and then a collapse, and then Jesus is collapsing with you. Maybe that's been your story. It's not been mine. And it's just kind of been like death by a thousand paper cuts. At least that's where I found myself at 26. And then Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And so then notice Martha's response, verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Like Jesus is starting to confront something. Like here's Martha's like her pain, but she's not wanting to show it, and Jesus kind of pokes her. He's going to rise again. And Martha's like, yeah, 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 I know. You know, Martha responds with really good theology. Have you ever done that before? You're in a crisis, a hard time, 
And because you're so lonely with God, you don't know how to express that loneliness to God, so instead you just express really good theology. Well, he's sovereign. He's on the throne. I believe it, brother and sister. And nobody can relate to you because nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. You wonder why nobody wants to have your Jesus because you do stuff like that. Well, he's on the throne, he's in control, and I just really have good theology. It was handed down to me 500 years ago. I'm great with it now. Nobody wants it. It's not real because you're not really buying into it. You know what's real? Where were you? I waited, and now I'm alone, and now I have no future. Where were you? Why didn't you show up? It's like beating on the chest. Where were you? I was begging you for this. That's real. People can relate to that. And notice what Jesus does out after this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, never die. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? He says, I am present now. I bring life now. Those who are dead can be raised now. And those who, listen to this, and those who are alive can finally have life now. Think about that. Those who are dead can rise, but those who've been alive can finally have life. That was actually an old kind of conundrum and riddle for Jewish people. They believed that when the Messiah came with him, he'd usher in like life, life. They didn't always know how to call it. We have different words, how we say it, the God life, abundant life, whatever it may be. But it's like this life that's more than bios. Like that would be a word that Jesus used, like biology, bios. He uses that when someone is born and they're alive. But here he's using the word zoe. Zoe. And it means abundant life, the God life. He uses that three times here in these two verses. So he's he's got a point to prove. But then with that, he also uses this word pistuo, pistuo, which means to believe in, believe in, or faith in. Zoe and pistuo. Zoe's three times, pistuo's four times. Here's what he's trying to say. I'm here, and I'm going to bring you everything that you've been longing for, Martha, the things in you that you were so afraid to ask for. You know, if I was Martha, the first thing I probably would have said to him after I beat him on the chest was, raise him back. Like, raise him back to life. And what does Martha go to? Her good theology. When in a pinch, don't be in need. Just rely on yourself and your good theology. But she doesn't do it. Like, she doesn't go to him in need. And Jesus is like, the only way you're going to get this life is by being really needy. But then there's a conundrum in there. Because he's saying to her, you're only going to get this life if you believe in me. Now, here's what faith is. So many times we've talked about faith in the church. That faith is something you need to muster up in you. Just squint your eyes, you know, don't look like you're going to the bathroom, but just really squint your eyes and just believe. Have faith. It's going to come to you. That's how I was taught growing up. Just have faith. Just believe. That's not how faith works. Like if any of you, if I didn't know you and you came to me and said, hey, just believe in me, I'd be like, I'll see you. This isn't going to work. Because you don't deserve my faith. 
See, here's what faith is. If I'm going to buy into something, that means that something has to prove itself to me over time. So that means faith is not empty. Faith is when you buy into somebody or someone or something that's proven itself faithful over time. That's what faith is. You give faith to things that are faithful. Basically, what Jesus is trying to say is, let the proof be in the pudding. Let me prove myself to you. The only way you're going to want this is if you know, like, I've proved myself faithful to you. So then here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Has God proven himself faithful to you? In some ways, yes, he has. Absolutely. But you have to be willing to reflect on that. It's a lot easier to find the times God didn't come through than God did come through. Don't you agree? It's so much easier to find those moments where God didn't come through than when he did come through. Here's what being a faithful, integrous human being who's responsible for your own life and thoughts means. That you take the good and the bad together. Well, God, where were you at this time? Okay, good question, Robin. But here's the other question. Do you see how I was with you in these times? It takes honest reflection of our own lives because both is there. And here's the problem. If you think that he wasn't there for other times, that just means you were a really good, smart, supreme human being who had control over your own life, which means, i.e., you were God. It takes a lot of honest reflection to simply go, God, like, I think you've been near at these times as well. Maybe you weren't as absent as I thought. And I don't know what that is for you, whether it's a marriage, like some of you right now are hanging on by a thread in your marriage, by a thread, and you keep praying and asking God to show up. And he has and he hasn't. Like, it seems like he has it because he hasn't changed your spouse the way that you want. Which, by the way, that's not marriage. That's a Stepford wife. Okay? Like, if you want somebody just to do what you want, like, don't get married. Go to Japan and go get a doll. All right, so. Like, that was too far. So, anyway. Sorry. Sorry, strike that. Um, like, if you, if, you want a, if you want a God, like, if you want a good spouse, like, that means you have to be willing to give in as well. Like, you're not going to get what you want out of it. So, here's how God has been there. Do you find yourself being changed and confronted? Because that's a good thing. Because it's a good thing to be rubbed up against and then have to be forced to have to think through different things. It's a good thing to not get your own way in life. Did you know that? It's a good thing for life not to work out on your terms all the time. Do you know that? Otherwise, you would always just be a perpetual five-year-old, and no one wants to be around you. It's a good thing to have life work out in ways you didn't want it to, and then somebody to be with you in it. Marriage. It's a good thing that maybe you didn't get the job that you thought that you just deserved and you were owed, because there's something called character. And when life just works out for you and just kind of falls into your lap all the time, you become such an entitled little brat. And people don't want to get near you on that. It's a really good thing for life not to work out for you, for you to have to go, God, where are you in this? And he goes, it's going to happen. Don't worry. Just give it space and give it time. And it's a good thing that you don't have friends who always just want to bind to the things you want, that they can push against you, that they can sharpen you. They call you out when you're drinking too much. 
Or they call you out when you're like just being too frivolous with your money. Those are good people to have in your life. Get those people closer to you. Listen to them. Because we don't have it all together as a human being. We need iron sharpening iron. Now, why do I say all that? It's a really good thing to have a God who doesn't come to you on your terms when you want. Because that's relationship. If you could snap your fingers and he appear, that's like a genie, right? Like two degrees, kind of like that. Like, where were you? Here we go. Come here. Like, it's like when Charlotte says to me, and we're playing, she'll go, sit. She won't snap her fingers, but she'll go, sit. I'm like, what am I, a dog? What are you doing? This is not how this works, three and a half year old, you know? And then I sit down. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, like, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it, that's not how it works. You don't snap your fingers and God appears. But tell you what, when God does appear, you got some feelings to share. Like when you know that God is near, you're like, we'll get to this thing in a minute, but I need to tell you how I feel about you right now. And here's the thing, God's not running away going, I can't take that. Oh my gosh, don't tell me how you feel. I mean, he's more like, okay, let's do this. Because you know what? I got feelings too. I got things I want to share. Ways I've been lonely with you, Robin. Ways I've been hurt by you, Robin. And when you do that with a person, when you can talk about your hurt, your fear, your love, all that kind of stuff, and you both do it, and you don't shame the other person, now you have a relationship. Now you have something real. Guess what? You have life. See, Jesus doesn't appear and sprinkle fairy dust over you and go, poof, now you have life. Just go float around throughout the world and be invincible and nothing's going to harm you. I really think the everlasting, eternal, abundant life is when you can live so present in the here and now, and you don't have to get away from it. Like that present life thing is powerful. When no matter what life throws your way, you go, I somehow can deal with this? Like it hurts like heck, but I somehow can deal with it. Like I don't have to run away anymore. I don't have to go check out anymore. Like I can just kind of be here. That's a powerful life. Because of course, of course you're going to die. And you'll be raised back to life one day, but you're going to die. But that means you could still live before you die. You have a lot of life here and now. Jesus shows up and is offering relationship. He's offering Zoe the kind of God life that only he can give. That when you can really interact and wrestle with your God, all of a sudden you start finding yourself changed. In your bulletins, there's a quote from John Eldridge. I want to read it. If you're not pursuing a dangerous quest with your life, well then, you don't need a guide. If you haven't found yourself in the middle of a ferocious war, then you won't need a seasoned captain. If you've settled in your mind to live as though this is a fairly neutral world and you are simply trying to live your life as best as you can, then you can probably get by with the Christianity with the Christianity of tips and techniques, maybe. I'll give you about a 50-50 chance. But if you intend to live life in the story that God is telling, and if you want the life that He offers, then you're going to need more than a handful of principles, however noble they may be. There are too many twists and turns in the road ahead, too many ambushes waiting only God knows where. Too much at stake. You cannot possibly prepare yourself for every situation. Narrow is the way, said Jesus. 
How shall we be sure to find it? We need God intimately. We need Him desperately. Do you believe this? Guess what? It's okay if you don't. But do you at least see that there's a need here? So I'll end with this. 26 years old, working on staff at a church, sitting in an Episcopal chapel, questioning my faith if God is even real. And I'm still working on that. Not what you want to hear from a pastor. Like, I know he's real for me, but like, that's been a 10-year, 12-year journey for me. Here's what I want to say. Sometimes you have to have your faith deconstructed to have it reconstructed. Some of you are getting away from the deconstructing of a God who has handed to you in a world that didn't really seem that real and honest, it seemed kind of fake, and you keep trying to like convince yourself to buy into all that stuff still. This is what the recovery world gets really well, by the way. In the recovery world, they realize something, that like whatever got you in those rooms wasn't working for you very well. So like you need more help. And you may even need to let go of some of the ways you saw God before so you can have God as He really is to you now. And I was just like, is there a way I can tidy this sermon up? I'm like, no, there's not. <laughs> there just really isn't when you, when you say those kind of things. But I do know this. I know there's this table, and I know there's a lot of room and space for you to bring your bits and pieces of what you feel is fragmented and questioning about God, and you can dump it right on that table. And he'll look at you and say, great, let's do this together. You got questions, I have answers, but they may not come when you want them, because I'm not a genie, but I will be in relationship with you, and we can work through this together. And I believe something. I believe that when you're honest enough, when I'm honest enough to do that, we get a faith that's really ours, because now we have a pistuo, a believing in, that really can't be shaken. And then we have a Zoe that really can't be taken away. But if you're grasping at Zoe right now and you can't really hold on to it, it's like air, it's like water through your fingers, then it may be time for you to really kind of come to this table and go, I give up trying to control this relationship. And I just need you to like be with me and me be with you. And I don't have all these theological answers, but I'm going to keep showing up to this table every week and taking of you and going and talking about with people around me and keep working this out. Because friends, it's been 12 years for me since that day. But I can tell you this. The faith I have today is more real than it's ever been before. And I'm grateful for that because it's mine. It's not someone else's. It's mine. And it's a relationship with a God that I know very clearly in very real ways. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, I pray that you would meet us at the table, comfort us by your Spirit. I have this fear that I, I, I left things more undone than even what I meant to, but the reality is that you're just big enough to handle that. I think about what C.S. Lewis said, that we need a God who comes and unties the parts of our lives that are knotted together. We need a God to come who comes and ties together the parts of our lives that are dangling loose. You can untie the knots, and you can tie together the pieces that are just hanging. So that's what I pray you would do. And Jesus, here's what I ask. You're basically saying to Martha, do you believe? You're saying to her, like, have I not done enough? Can you not really see me for who I've been to you so far? I pray that you would just meet people in this room. If there's anybody here that can really relate to what I just talked about, 
that you would just be very faithful to come meet them and go, do you believe? I am the resurrection and I am the life. I bring to you Zoe here and now. And that Jesus, you would be very patient with people in this room as they're walking through this part in their faith. And that all of us, wherever we may be on that spectrum, would find deep comfort at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.